Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. of The Sausage Factory. Welcome. In this episode, I chat to Yaroslav Maloon of Rendlike Games about the action-adventure game Fix Fox. Many times during this episode, I got the name slightly wrong, I think. I don't know. I might have got away with it. Let's see. Can't remember. Because it is in the past. I've recorded these shows in the past, and then I do the introduction at the time of release. So I can reflect on what was discussed and many things were discussed in this show. And this game, Fix Fox, has a lot of humour in it. Well-placed, well-timed, gentle humour. Laughing at the absurdity of what's going on. Namely, you being a half-fox, half-human being, fixing spaceships. I mean, it's just weird in a good way it's very gentle there's not a lot of violence if if any violence actually in fix fox it's quite serene in that regard nevertheless you can be put yourself in danger you can be sucked out into space because it is a space-bound adventure really well developed and put together of course it is that's why it's on the sausage factory we only have the very best on this show, trust me. So let's listen to me from the past chatting to Yaroslav about Fix Fox. See, it's hard to say. Yaroslav, who are you and what do you do? Well, uh, I'm chiefly game developer. I'm a founder of a newly established micro studio, Renlike. I'm so far the only member. And uh, originally I started as a programmer, but uh, since I'm now working solo, I uh, have to basically do everything that uh, comes into developing a game, which means art and writing and uh, production and some minor audio editing. And uh, right now I'm working on a game called FixFox. It's my debut game as a designer. And uh, I live in Prague, in Czech Republic. Okay, so that's quite a quite a step forward um, to say, you know, and Fix Fox is, we're going to talk about that, how stunning it is and what you've created and <clears throat> the sheer breadth of content this game has and the, the, the people in it. Are they, I don't know, people? Yeah, we'll talk about that later. But, um, no, they are, let's face it, they are sentient beings and... Um, but it's very impressive. But um, let's delve into a little bit of your history, uh, Yaroslav. How did you make your start making video games? Well, actually, um, uh, my first uh, type of game that I saw were uh, arcade games on uh, 
traveling fun facts because uh, I was born in early 80s in Eastern Bloc and uh, home computers were not a thing actually at the time. So my first uh, experience with uh, playing games was uh, in these uh, arcades that came once a year on a on a traveling funfair, and that's where I first saw that something like this exists, like digital games. And uh, not uh, long after, we were able uh, to get our own home computer. It was uh, a bit Atari, and uh, just after the uh, Iron Curtain went down, my parents were able to uh, travel to Germany, and uh, they uh, got some cheap Atari so that we could uh, see what all the computers are about. And uh, obviously... Games uh, were interesting thing for me because uh, I was really into like technical stuff and anything that uh, just flashed and uh, seemed to be interactive. And as a result, I was not only interested in playing and just, uh, but also about uh, how do these games actually work? Like how do you make games? Because it felt as well, or maybe even more interesting to me than playing the games. And uh, luckily, my brother had a technical uh, degree, so he was able to get me some uh, textbook about programming in BASIC. So uh, in, I think, my second or th- third grade, yeah, uh, I started to learn myself uh, programming in BASIC on this uh, on this Atari computer. These were not games, based, uh, but, uh, but just simple programs. But I was super ha- happy about it, and uh, I was even able to uh, record them on uh, cassette tapes because that's what that was the medium that uh, came with uh, with the Atari computers at the time. Okay. And yeah, uh, that's, that's basically my origin story. But yeah, sorry. I'll say that um, I can certainly relate to that. Um, I know the Atari machines were overshadowed by the Commodores 64s and stuff, but they are the basic on them was phenomenally powerful it was an amazing it could run things very fast much faster than many other machines of the same era and i can definitely i'm even older i was born in the early 70s so uh um i, I grew up as a teenager with those old 8-bit machines so i can definitely relate to what you're talking about there and remember typing in those uh programs from magazines uh, because that's all we had back then yeah (laughs) and uh, yeah that's where i basically that was the point where i kind of decided that uh, making games is gonna be my career but i just didn't know what steps led to it because uh in czechia at the time uh there were no studios and uh, there were no schools that could teach you making games so i just Taught myself and went along in the hope that uh, would be a spot for me in the industry later. So uh, early on, I went to PC when we got our first uh, 386 or 286, I think, and uh, I started learning programming in Pascal. And uh, naturally, I started with something easy, which were text games, uh, because uh, text processing or uh, like uh, programming text games was much easier for me. And uh, then. Uh, Uh, I went on to uh, making games in Flash because uh, I uh, somehow wanted to make a jump to graphics. And this was a really uh, visually oriented platform. And uh, I even made a first website at a time uh, <laughs> focused on uh, games uh, inspired by the cartoon Futurama. Or Futurama, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. St- still at the time, I didn't know how do you actually start making games professionally? Because uh, there were studios already at the time in Czechia, but uh, they already somehow uh, only accepted people with experience. And uh, I was uh, in high school, and I didn't know how to make the jump again. So I just went along and started studying uh, computer graphics, which I felt was the closest to uh, making games. Uh, and it, it gave me a very solid uh, technical background, and uh, I still went on making games. But uh, even though there already were studios and it would probably accept me, I just didn't have self-confidence. I felt like I'm just a kid who learned himself, and they uh, like I wouldn't be good enough. Uh, so <laughs> it took me even like longer than that to get my courage and try to uh, join one of the studios, which happened. In late uh, 
Yeah, I think 2005. Yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry, 2010. And mm-hmm. uh, that's when I joined uh, uh, one of the mobile studios that uh, actually uh, first uh, game up in Kia. Uh, it was fun, but uh, I wasn't a mobile game player. Uh, I grew up on 8-bit uh, games and uh, PC, and this this was these were games made for a different audience, obviously not uh, not casual style. So I didn't feel like uh, that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. So I uh, jumped into a new uh, newly established uh, indie studio, which was kind of punk because uh, they uh, the studio was in an old building near. Uh, Railway crossing, and uh, it was really noisy, but we were really passionate about the project, and that's where I um, learned to make PC games, and uh, that's where I uh, learned how uh, the games are essentially made. Wow. And uh, luckily, the company uh, got kind of successful. The game was released on PC and consoles, and where I uh, learned about consoles, and because until that time, I didn't know anything about it. I was mostly PC player. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. PlayStation or Xbox, that was completely new to me. Uh, the NES era completely uh, missed me because uh, in our country it wasn't a thing. We were mostly PC gamers. So I learned that uh, PlayStation exists and <laughs> console games are actually fun. Uh, so yeah, I know I know it's, uh, it sounds strange. but uh, that, No, uh, not uh, at all. I, um, I didn't finish Chrono Trigger until way later. Don't worry, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> Um, still one of my favourites. It's an amazing game. Anyway, <clears throat> but um, so anyway, yeah, had... while uh, yeah, go on. while I was working uh, in the studio, I uh, discovered that um, indie games actually exist or game jams, and uh, that's uh, why I started to make my own games on the side because I wanted something new, some some uh, original and quick projects. And uh, I started doing Ludum Dares, which are kind of a famous uh, game jam. And uh, uh, at the time, Global Game Jam was starting, starting. so I thought uh, this could be a fun opportunity to meet other game developers from Czechia that would be interested in uh, game jamming. So uh, I have established a local site for Global Game Jam uh, with a couple of friends, and we ran it for 10 years until the pandemic hit. And it was really fun because uh, I get to learn designing games quickly, uh, um, discover the joy of uh, prototyping and uh, trying out new ideas quickly and see what works and uh, throw away what doesn't, and also kind of meet the others from the local community, which was really helpful later when I uh, needed help from the community on my own projects. And uh, and, uh, as I uh, discovered the indie game movement, I became really uh, motivated by it because I wanted to make my own games. So I uh, became a freelancer and started doing uh, freelancing jobs so that I would have uh, more time on the site uh, and be more flexible time-wise to uh, start my own projects. And uh, I had multiple false starts with uh, indie games that didn't like launch very well, but uh, uh, the pinnacle of it right now is Fixbox, which uh, is multi-year endeavor, and uh, I was able to uh, get funding and now we are basically launching in a month. Uh, one of the so th- yeah, that's uh, that's how I got to where I'm now. <laughs> yeah, that's a wonderful story, and it's, it's one of, what's quite pivotal is that you admit that you have a very different history of game creation and game experience, video game experience, to many other parts of the world. And I've said this often that there was one event that brought everyone together for good or ill, but it basically leveled the playing field and said, okay, we had all these desperate things going on. Europe had its computers. North America had the NES. Japan has its own, you know, the the PC engine going on and all sorts of, you know, the Wonder Swan (laughs) and stuff and all sorts of stuff. It was all desperate and everyone was doing their own thing. And then, good or ill, now this is a definite pivotal milestone in video game history. Sony released the PlayStation. That was it. Just everything, suddenly it all just melted pretty much in the mid 90s, and then we all just went, Oh, okay. <laughs> and even if we weren't console players, you know, we were playing the PC and playing Doom and stuff, that was mirroring mm. what was going on with the PlayStation. And your story mirrors that because eventually you were programming in C and 
doing all, you know, running flash games like everyone else does. Like you started from a very different place, but then you ended up, wait, I'm just like, I'm in the same place, but your history and your background is different. And that's what you bring. That's what you bring. That's what we all bring. It's what everyone's brought forward now is just, well, we all came from a different place, but we arrived in the same place. Kind of. And that's where I think the work that I've seen or the effort I've seen in FixFox definitely demonstrates that your work ethic and your perseverance is, has borne fruit because all those false starts and all the work you put in has, um, has converged into this thing. Say, well, you know what? This is what I think a game is. And I've released it and made it. And uh, that's something to be applauded. So we'll talk about that in the second half of the show. But I hope you understand where I'm coming from with that. So the next question um, is a big, bit um, bit open-ended and, and difficult to understand. But it's, it's an important question. And the question is this. As a creator of things, which you are, Yaroslav, what are your biggest influences? Well, I have kind of an origin story for uh, the basis of all the games that I'm trying to make. Uh, in 2012, uh, I went to Japan with my wife, and uh, one of the places that we wanted to visit was uh, Hiroshima, and it's a peace memorial. And uh, we knew that uh, the emotions there would be really strong, but uh, I was definitely not uh, ready <laughs> for what I have experienced because uh, the description kind of what uh, we as humanity are capable of was uh, very strong for me and very emotional. And I knew that uh, me as a human or as part of humanity don't want to contribute to the hatred that was uh, part of our history. Mm. So I just thought uh, games are my medium. And uh, most of the time, or the chief channel of entertainment for me, or even like learning about the world was uh, through games. So I uh, took kind of a personal woe. Where I decided to stop playing games that uh, promote violence. And I uh, stop making games that do the same thing and instead focus on games that uh, teach us kindness and empathy because I understand games as basically a medium for learning or for gaining new experiences because even if uh, any game you play it somehow influences you and like shapes your thinking and trains you in certain skills and I think the kind of skills that would benefit our role the most our uh, kindness and empathy and like uh, learning to live peacefully in our society and definitely I realize it's a it's a big task I won't change the world but I can maybe uh, make a few people uh, happier and change just a small corner of the world or make it more kind and empathic so that's, that's kind of what uh, that's shapes a, my opinions that's a wonderful sentiment and Answers a lot of the questions I have about Fixbox. I'm have to rewrite them now. Thank you. I'm kidding, of course. But um, <laughs> no. Um, yes, empathy. There's been a few games now that have been setting out to actually teach empathy, which sadly is a is a thing that people malign. It's awful. But for many years, decades, maybe even longer, empathy's been trying to be squeezed out of people. I don't know why, and that's a discussion outside this podcast, but. To, to elevate it to the central tenet of the games you make. That's, that's a laudable thing, so thank you. That's a wonderful answer to that very difficult question, because I get a lot of, lot of guests get a bit stumped with it, because they haven't really thought about it, but clearly you have, so thank you. So, speaking of other developers, um, the next question is also a bit of a toughy one. Maybe it's not, but um, ask you this just to make sure that you, Yaroslav, are not living in a bubble. And I know you're not. Clearly, you're not. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to do what you do. But to, to, to tell me, what 
video game developer you do you most admire in the industry and why? Can be a person or a company. So, uh, it's actually both because okay. uh, the one I'd like to speak of is uh, a pair of developers who own a small company. Uh, their names are Adam and Rebecca Saltzman, and they own a company called Finji. They are now uh, indie game publishers, and I'm actually not as much interested in games that they make, but uh, how they seem to work as human beings. Because uh, Adam Saltzman, he uh, made, for example, games like Cannabalt or Overland. They are, these are uh, like uh, games that started kind of indie game movement in 2008-10. And uh, Adam also created a Flash game engine called Flixel, which I used to create most of my uh, Game Jam games. But as I started following him and seeing uh, their uh, how they how they work inside the indie game community, I somehow felt that uh, they are exactly the role model I was looking for. The game developer who is kind and uh, is able to uh, work with empathy and uh, kind of make the game indie game community a really nicer place and uh, much much more kinder. And uh, since they started publishing games, they are specifically choosing uh, titles that uh, are made by marginalized people, and they try to uh, work with uh, diverse game developers, just uh, trying to somehow balance the privileges that some of us have and some of us don't. And uh, even through these talks, I, I have obviously never met them personally and probably never will, but... Uh, from all their uh, communication, I just sense that uh, they are really, really kind. And that's what I uh, admire in in people. Excellent. Their name again, just to make sure everyone knows. Uh, The first one would be Cannabalt. It's a minimalistic rhythm-based platformer. Oh, yes, yes, Cannabalt. One of my yeah. favourite uh, phone games of all time. Did you know they ported it to the Commodore 64? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> they did. It's amazing. It's amazing. But it makes sense, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, you know, it's not as fast for obvious reasons, but uh, it's pretty impressive. But, it makes uh, sense, absolutely. It totally does. But no. So, my last question in the first half. See, look, you made it. Well done. Is this. Um, and again, it's related to understanding your drinking in the medium that you're making as well. You have the enthusiasm for, for games just as much as anyone else. So I have to ask, what are you playing right now? Well, if by playing right now you mean uh, I started playing it on my console and then stopped because we have a baby, oh. and that would be, <laughs> that would be a game called Jet the Far Shore. It's uh, made by Super Brothers, and uh, their previous game was called Sword and Sorcery, uh, which was uh, uh, originally made for uh, iPhone, and it was a pixel art-styled, very visually distinct adventure game mm-hmm. with uh, minimalistic style in both visuals and uh, gameplay, and their latest title, Jet. Uh, seems to kind of come from the same place, but with a uh, much more grandiose uh, scale. Okay. And uh, I was completely mesmerized by uh, the presentation because uh, it's uh, a story of a civilization that uh, travels through space. And uh, because I'm a big fan of sci-fi and uh, space exploration, this was uh, thematically very interesting to me, but uh, also they seem to have created a whole mythos regarding the specific civilization, and uh, it really seems to be uh, very delicately crafted. But uh, as I said, I have only had, uh, had a chance to play very shortly the game, and uh, what surpassed is uh, a game called Untitled Goose Game, because uh, Luckily, this game is uh, toddler-friendly, toddler so I was able to play it with, uh, with our baby. Lovely. Because you just press a button to make the goose honk, and he loves yeah. it so much. It is a wonderful game. The fact that they run out of ideas about what to call it. like, Well, we haven't got an... It's got a goose in it. Fine. It hasn't got a title. 
Oh, there you go. It's an untitled Goose Game. Brilliant. Wait, that makes no sense. Just publish it, it'll be fine. And, uh, yeah, one of the most celebrated games in the last three or four years. It's that old now. Um, but, um, yeah, good shout. Yeah. Good stuff. Okay. Well, that's the end of the first half, as I said. So we're now going to skip along into the second half of the show where we delve deep into Fix Fox. Before we start, I'm going to make an apology. It's quite likely I'm going to mispronounce the name of the game. I keep on calling it something else. <laughs> I keep on putting a T instead of an X in the middle of it. It's kind of annoying. I've, I've, I've trained myself not to call it that, but it's kind of, you know, because that means something entirely different and it won't work at all. But uh, I've got all my notes in front of me, or just to the listener, there's some notes on my on my portrait screen over to my right. And um, it's, it does, does say Fix Fox, so I'm going to make sure I do say it. I said I'm training myself. But, um, Yaroslav, please tell us, what is Fix Fox? Fix Fox is a wholesome sci-fi adventure game. Uh, you play as Wix, who is an unlucky space mechanic, and uh, she crash lands on a mysterious planet where tools are forbidden. So even though you're a mechanic, you aren't allowed to use your... Uh, regular tools, but you need to somehow scavenge for things that you can use to fix machines. And these things uh, are not what would come to your mind when you want to fix something. So you find things like coins or a banana or sandwich, and uh, because the whole world is kind of quirky, uh, it actually works for the machine, so you can use these uh, different uh, strange uh, unexpected items to fix those machines. And uh, on the planet, you are accompanied by your trusty toolbox tin, and you need to travel across this planet and discover hidden stashes left by pirates that uh, contain the items that you need. And uh, the planet is inhabited by robots, who are usually in a pinch because some of their house appliances is broken, and you are there to help them fix it and become their new friend. And uh, yeah, basically the game is about exploration and discovery. It's an adventure game uh, driven by story, but uh, it uh, takes place in a few open world areas. So you kind of have a free hand on where you want to go unless you are pursuing the main quest. Uh, I'm aiming for a very cozy and pleasant atmosphere, so uh, you can just uh, walk around and sit by the fire and talk to some fun characters. Or you can just uh, pursue the main quest and try to uncover the mystery of the planet. You get to fix the machines, as I said, but you also get to build some, because there are some huge mecha robots that you get to pilot if you can find all their parts. And uh, usually as a reward for <clears throat> fixing a machine, you are presented with a meal. 
because there are some interesting uh, mini games where in the first person view, uh, in a, a pixel art rendition, you get to uh, enjoy a delicious soup or a pot pie as a thanks for the robots. And uh, the purpose is to enjoy the cozy atmosphere, but also to get some useful hints because uh, while you are eating, the robot is uh, giving you some uh, secret tips that you can use later to progress uh, through the game. Yeah, that starts off very early. You know, you have some, well, although the first meal you have is kind of interrupted by disaster. and uh, But thankfully, Tin does save you. It's a bit of a spoiler, but that, I won't say what happens. But it's kind of like, wait, I was in the middle of, never mind. And, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, it's a top-down view, everyone. It's a pixel art sort of, um, but lots of lighting uh, and uh, shading and like sort of pixel, uh, yeah, uh, particle effects everywhere. It's, it's you know, <clears throat> you know, the, the the Atari 8-bits would not be able to run this machine, this game, no way. Oh, but um, it uh, it does go go along a fair old clip. It does go quite fast. It's, it's, but um, having said that, there is a sense of urgency. But you realise that well, I'll, I'll get to this stuff eventually. Uh, I mean, this beacon's been off for uh, you know hundreds of years and stuff. I'm sure it will be fine. It can wait for another few minutes or so before I go and fix it. But because. Vex, who's sent off, who's Fix Fox, who's called Fix Fox out of a sense of irony. His name is a joke because apparently he's not a very good mechanic. Um, but although I would, you know, counter that because I'm pretty good in the game. But, um, one of the things that um, struck me about Fix Fox, and you've already hinted at why this is, but let's delve into this a little bit more because Big. Baked in to Fix Fox is a feeling of irreverence, as a feeling of carefree, sort of like um, it's you know the people in it and the and and the factions also that they belong to are quite naive. Um, you know they're not malicious or aggressive really. They come up. There's a couple of factions that are a little bit rude, kind of borderline, but then they apologise about being rude in the same sentence. And um, I won't say what they are. I don't want to reveal any content. But um, and almost childlike, actually, in some regards. They feel a bit, you know, very, they just want a, a, a quiet life. Thank you very much. Would you like a sweetie? It's all very like, it's just, it's quite nice. When you encounter people, you don't feel threatened Rarely ever, although we'll talk about later about Tin's issues, but generally speaking, you don't really feel a great deal of threat. And I have to ask this. Why? Why did you do that? I think the chief reason is uh, what I said earlier, that I'm interested mm. in games that uh, teach you kindness. And yes. uh, I don't think that every game needs to contain some kind of conflict to motivate you to play it. Uh, especially during the pandemic, I think a whole uh, lot of uh, wholesome games, they just uh, are enjoyable and uh, pleasant to play, show very well that uh, this seems to kind of be a through. Like, you don't need to uh, have aggression. And yeah, again, uh, again, I agree that uh, they may come as naive because I wanted to portray kind of a quirky world because that's what seems fun and interesting to me. And uh, uh, since I work solo on the game, I wasn't able to create a plethora of uh, deeply uh, written characters. So they uh, probably come out as uh, naive or flat. But uh, I'm kind of fine with it because I think uh, it still allows uh, the pleasant atmosphere to come through so that yes. you feel yes. friendly and cosy in the world. Yeah, if you want dark, gritty drama, go play Disco Elysium, okay? That's fine. And, you know, go have neuroses about all sorts of terrible psychoses and, uh, and what have you. 
At the same time, I uh, should probably say that uh, it's not just uh, all sunshine and rainbows, because uh, uh, the NPCs that you meet, they are kind of flat, but uh, the story takes a bit on a darker yes. uh, turn later yes. in the game, because you get to delve into uh, suppressed memories of some of the, some of the characters. Uh, in the game, actually, uh, it's uh, wrapped in a mechanic uh, where you are able to replay their memories stored on cassette tapes. They are called dream tapes, and you have a special player where you just uh, are transported into their mind, and you play uh, through their eyes the memories that they have uh, experienced. And uh, yeah. yeah, obviously, the, not all of these memories are happy, and uh, by kind of... Uh, Exploring them and uh, learning to know the characters, you are able to empathize with them and help them through issues that they might have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like I said. It's not. You're right. Uh, I didn't want to oversimplify it, but I didn't want to reveal too much content. But uh, it's important to note that yes, it does get into very difficult content without hitting you over the head with it. Um, and uh, but it's, it's it's very well done and very well very subtly delivered. So uh, my next question is really about the puzzles, uh, puzzle element of Fix Fox. Um, I believe from what I've played of Fix Fox, and there has been quite a lot of it, is it champions or celebrates lateral thinking. It uh, cause and effect you. You know that you've got a broken wire. You need to seal it somehow. And uh, you just need some tape. But that tape could take any form. It won't necessarily be actual tape. It could be anything that you find that's tape-like. That'll do. And that starts off very simple at the beginning, but then it becomes more and more complicated. Um, tell us, was that always there? And also... It's you. You present it in a funny way. It's quite. It's very, very humorous. Um, it's quite a feat because it's quite a dry topic. So was this always baked into Fix Fox that you have this rather quirky set of tools and equipment that you have to make do with? Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, actually, not. Uh, I should start maybe about ex- by explaining that. Uh, the game changed quite a lot during its development uh, because uh, it wasn't always called Fixfox. Uh, it was renamed just recently. And uh, the reason is that originally I started uh, making the game as uh, uh, a space exploration roguelike with a hard science fiction element and elements and uh, without any quirkiness or cuteness. Uh, but later I realized that uh, I'm not able to make these huge kind of games inspired by No Man's Sky as a single person. That's obviously not uh, realistic. So I kind of started uh, uh, changing the design and making it making it into something more uh, realistic to be done by a solo developer. So I went for story-driven adventure game, and uh, I still kept the theme of science fiction and uh, fixing machines, but originally... Uh, fixing machines through with, with the bananas and uh, sandwiches was not uh, was not uh, the idea, and it only came later when I decided that uh, quirkiness is something that I'm familiar with and can uh, and I'm able to write a story for. Because at the beginning I uh, didn't know that uh, there would be any story at all. I just thought uh, it would uh, be. Uh, Procedurally generated, uh, story, uh, procedurally generated content. And, uh, I, th- I would, uh, get someone to write a story for me because uh, I had very little experience with writing. And, uh, as I progressed, I realized I am kind of able to do it and, uh, was able to pull it off, uh, writing the story myself in a mm. way. Yeah. That's, that's really good to hear to know that. Because you've done lots of game jams in the past, nothing is sacred. You know, you can throw things away. Even though you spent maybe two or three weeks banging away at this thing, go, this doesn't work. This is not, this is tossed out. It's just part of the creative process. It often comes up on this show for obvious reasons that, and I've said it before, and apologies everyone, I'm going to say it again, but the creative process is very destructive. 
Um, you do actually make a lot of things that just are of no use to the particular project you're working on. Certainly you might want to use it on another thing, maybe, or a variation of it, but on the thing you're working on right now, it's just not going to fit. And you made that decision. It's the, it was the right decision, if I may say. My next question, then, is really about mental awareness. This is related to the first question almost, but we'll talk about TIN, which is the uh, robot helper, the toolbox, the sentient toolbox that you have. He has a lot of worries. He worries a lot about everything. There's always space vampires around every corner. Uh, and he's constantly looking out for the player character. Um, was that always within Fix Fox, this, this idea of mental awareness and mental health and making sure that, I mean, he does look after him physically, but also, or him or her, whatever gender Fix, uh, fit, uh, fix Fox needs to be. Um, but it's, it's, um, or is, um, but is it, was that always there? Was it something that became apparent as you started writing the story? I think the chief reason is, uh, or uh, I, I always knew there would be kind of a companion uh, because the protagonist is silent, so I needed someone to comment on every of your steps. And because I wanted it to have some uh, comedy element, I thought... Uh, having someone who uh, is trying to overly protect you from everything would uh, allow players somehow to uh, sometimes uh, feel or enjoying the or, or enjoying ignoring the commands of uh, your uh, uh, partner or uh, yeah or companion because if he uh, tells you like don't go there it's dangerous you would be cheeky and just go there and see what's there. And somehow I'm even using that uh, in the game where uh, he's trying to persuade you not to do anything, but it's exactly what you what you need to do. And uh, uh, through the story, the presently somehow changes of the companion, or he is uh, realizing uh, that he doesn't need to worry as much about you. Uh, there's quite, kind of a parallel, parallel with... Uh, me becoming a parent because uh, once I became a father I was very worried about our baby and uh, constantly watching it but uh, then we realized that we have to give it some free space, we can't watch every every of its steps and somehow we need to get comfortable with uh, a little risk here and there and then gradually get further and further and uh, give the baby more freedom. So this is kind of what uh, the companion needs to learn throughout the game, to let the player do what they need to do, even if it's dangerous. Yeah. I mean, one of the first thing it says when you land on the planet, I would say, where, and uh, it says, yeah, stay in, stay in here. Just, just, just don't go. Just don't do anything. Just, just stay in there. Just best not leave. Um, it's bad. The things are bad. No, just don't leave. It's bad. And... Uh, you know, thankfully the player ignores, well, it doesn't ignore him, but, uh, takes, takes that under advisement and decides to have a look outside anyway. Um, but, um, and of course the adventure unfolds from there. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful relationship between the player and, and, and Tin. I think it's, it's a really well realized thing. It's, uh, you, the, the, the parent child thing is evident there. And it's, uh, I'm not surprised that that's where it came from. But thank you for sharing. Um, so my last question then of this second half. Here we go. Um, one thing I have to talk about, I can't not mention it. When one thing that really struck me as amazing in in Fix Fox is is scaling. Um, you're everything. One minute you're zoomed in on a little like hut or garage. Next minute you're flying out in space over above a and in orbit around this planet and then docking into a, a, a relic of a, of a, you know, and it's just, it's very early in the game, by the way, it's just, and, um, it's just really well realized. Is this, um, 
it sounds like I'm going to change my question a little bit because I didn't know until you spoke about you did originally start making a, a roguelike sort of you know <clears throat> serious space adventure game. Is that where that technology comes from? That scaling of zooming in and out. When when in, you're a little like, tiny dot and you can zoom right in and then you're in the thick of things. Was that always part of the game? Yes, it was always supposed to be a top-down 2D game. Uh, my biggest inspiration was a very old game, the original GTA, which uh, uses a similar top-down perspective. And I, I like that uh, it allows you to stay like in the middle of the action and uh, somehow feel uh, or see the character uh, be part of the world. And uh, like since I chose the game not to be 3D, and but, but uh, 2D instead, uh, it was kind of a gift and a curse at the same time, because uh, it allowed me to uh, make a lot of things much easier, like working with different layers. But at the same time, uh, having 3D objects would be much, uh, much easier to work with. For example, I wanted to, I wanted wanted objects in the game to cast shadows, like uh, different rocks and stones. Mm. But with 2D sprites, you can't do that. So I had to create my own script that uh, basically uh, takes this 2D shape and extrudes it into uh, 3D space so that uh, it could cast shadow. And (coughs) it looks really nice. It does. Uh, does. But I can still stay in in 2D with uh, with, the resource uh, sprites. Yeah, these these little tricks you have to pull off. But it just zooms in and out fluidly. It's not jarring. It's not difficult. You do... The zoom speed is just right. I'm sure you spent a lot of time figuring that out. Because if you do it too quickly, it becomes nauseous. It becomes difficult mm. to keep track of things. Yeah, yeah. Definitely it took, took a lot of effort to figure out how to, what what can I uh, afford with the camera without mm. uh, uh, like making it too difficult for the player. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's because in 2D you can't do camera shots. Uh, in 3D I could just do quick shots uh, on the character or on the objects uh, they are interacting with, but in 2D, you can't do that, so I, uh, what I aim for is uh, doing it with uh, zooming in on the object. Mm. And also and it, cutting to the first-person uh, minigames, which are fixing an inventory and, uh, and uh, eating minigames. Yes, yes, of course. And a whole different, like, one minute you're, you know, going through the, 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 the uh, environment, um, or you're actually looking at a panel and unscrewing it and then seeing a happy face and realizing you have to make that uh, and do things. Uh, <laughs> and it, yeah, it's not jarring at all. It's all very fluid. And you can tell you, you really thought about making sure that the player is comfortable at all times. And you really spent a lot of effort making Fix Fox very comfortable to play. So thank you. So. Fix Fox, which is developed by Rendlike. Great name. Where does it come from? Well, I'm a big fan of food and cooking, and uh, Rendlike or Rendlik in uh, oh, Czech language apologies. means a saucepan. Ah, oh, Rendlik. Okay. Sorry, I'm <laughs> just I'm being terribly British and stressing. Well, my actually, <laughs> Rendlike is an intended uh, pronunciation. I liked the ah. like at the end. Like, excellent. And it's um, published by Joystick Ventures, understand? At least what the internet told me. Uh, and can you tell what platforms it, uh, FixFox is available on, or will be? It will launch on a PC for Windows and a Mac. Nice. You're the first guest I've actually said, responded by actually telling me what platforms are on rather than what it's being sold on. It's amazing. They always say, oh, it's on Steam. And like, yeah, I know. That's great. But what does it run on? Oh. <laughs> and I'm happy that it's on Mac as well because my laptop's a Mac. Uh, so, you know, and uh, there's, there's still, a, still a minority of games run on Macs. It's strange, but uh, well done for doing that. So, Yaroslav, you've been a fantastic guest. Thank you very much for sharing your experiences in creating FixFox. It's a wonderful game. And um, you're more than welcome to come back to talk about what next is on your plate, whatever that may be. We will be here. We've had a lot of return guests over the years. And, uh, yeah, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash Cane and Rinse for early, extended, and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, and at our website, caneandrinse.com.